0: Happy, happy sounds. It is very, very apparent that uh, you people love each other. And that's a good thing. That is a good thing. So... In uh, preparation for uh, last week and this week's message, I, some months ago, was doing a little research, looking around on the internet and uh, checking some things out, and I came across some, some statistics that I have been wanting to share with you, and I've been sitting on it until now, and it seems like it's appropriate this morning to share some of those statistics with you. They're drawn from a, a website by the name of Eternal Prospective Ministries if you want to go yourself and check it out. It's a website that is affiliated with Randy Alcorn. You may know Randy's work and he's a credible, credible guy. So I have a couple of these uh, statistics for you and I think I actually have them on slides so you can see them. The first one is rather stunning. It says over the next 50 years, it's estimated that up to $136 trillion will pass from older Americans to younger ones. Over the next 50 years, up to $136 trillion will change hands, generationally. That has got to be the largest transfer of wealth. Generational transfer of wealth, I would imagine, in the history of the world. Incredible amount of wealth, right? We're, we're talking about the national deficit, right? $15 trillion. We're talking about $136 trillion, 10 times that amount. will change hands. Secondly... Randy's website tells us that 80% of the world's evangelical wealth is in North America. So that means 80% of the world's evangelical wealth, which is a subset of that $136 trillion, lies here in North America, primarily, of course, the United States. Third, in spite of its unprecedented wealth, the evangelical church has shown a steady downward trend in giving. Especially as it relates to world missions. There is a long-term downward trend in giving. We are the wealthiest generation, certainly of evangelicals, that the world has ever known. And yet, increasingly, we are failing to invest that wealth eternally. You remember when shortly after the uh, ascension of Christ, Peter and John are going into the temple and they meet a beggar. You remember this story? It's in Acts. And he's looking for some gifts And they say to him, the old King James, Silver and gold have I none. What do you have? I give to you in the name of Jesus. Stand up and walk. The church can no longer say, Silver and gold have I none. We're wealthy. Very, very wealthy. I share these statistics with you this morning not to beat anyone up. That's not my point. I share it with you because I want you to understand the significance of the message in Matthew's gospel that he has for us in our generation. It's a message clearly given historically 2,000 years ago to to his disciples, and and it applies generationally, but I think it for sure applies in our generation. I don't think this is a message that we can just sort of get over. You know, sometimes you get under conviction, right? And you walk out of here convicted, but a good lunch and a nap and it's all gone, right? I understand how that can happen. This is not something that a good lunch and a nap should take away. Jesus is talking to us He is speaking to you and He is speaking to me. To whom much is given, much is required. So it's a serious matter we undertake this morning. Open your Bibles up to Matthew 6. We're returning to this portion of the Sermon on the Mount. Looking at verses 19 to 24 of entitled the message, God or Greed. God or greed. And it's really that stark. It's that kind of drastic choice. Jesus is the master communicator. And so he crafts this message, this portion of his sermon, very, very powerfully. In order to drive home the reality that it's either God or it's greed, and it cannot be both. To choose one is to exclude the other. He does it here through three contrasts. He gives us three contrasts, and they're, they're designed to drive home this message. Each of the three contrasts has the same point. This is a one-point sermon, three illustrations. To drive it home over and over and over again, we must choose. We must choose. We will choose, by the way. There's no middle option. There's no, well, my option is I don't choose. No. To not choose God is to choose the other. Last time we looked at the first contrast, it appears in verses 19 to 21. It's the contrast of two conflicting investment strategies Two conflicting investment strategies. It's treasure on earth versus treasure in heaven. Take a look. Verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves, or more literally, stop storing up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But instead, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy And where thieves do not break in or steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's the contrast of two different investment strategies. Now, last time we we noted the fact that, that Jesus is placing the emphasis here not upon having wealth, nor even upon accumulating wealth. That's not what he's getting at. It is not a criticism of having wealth. It's not a criticism of accumulating wealth. The criticism is the purpose behind the accumulation of wealth. It's the heart motive that he's after. And what he says here, and you'll you see it in verse 19, stop storing up, and it's right here, for yourselves, that's what he's after. For yourselves, grammatically, for yourselves to the exclusion of everyone else. Now, for yourselves is broad enough to say for yourselves and your family. That all kind of fits in there. For yourselves. To consume it upon yourselves. Rather than to benefit others. It is an earth-bound investment strategy. It is an investment strategy that cannot see beyond tomorrow. It's an investment strategy, by the way, that is foolish, as Jesus points out, because it it has all kinds of earth-bound hazards associated with it. He points them out to us, right? He talks about the moth, he talks about the rust, and we... Explained all that last time, the thieves. If you missed last week's message, you should hear it. You can get it on our website. You ought to hear it. This earthbound investment strategy, he says, is, is subject to earthbound hazards. They consume it. But there's a contrast, verse 20, and the contrast is the heavenly investment strategy. The heavenly investment strategy. And this strategy is a strategy of security and prosperity. It's fascinating. You know, it's like, it's like a handful of jello. Earthbound investment strategies like a, a handful of jello. The harder you squeeze it, when you open your hand, the less you'll have. Moss, rust, thieves... They erode it. Instead of that, store it up in heaven, he says, verse 20, where these earthbound hazards cannot get at it. They can't attack it. They can't diminish it. Store up your treasures in heaven. We took the time last week to lay out what I believe that means, that expression, treasures in heaven, it can be rather nebulous. And I shared some some ideas with you that some Bible teachers have had. And and you could see there's some nebulousness to some of their answers. But I'm convinced that it it is in the context here, it's talking about money. This is a money context. And so the, the heavenly treasure is a money kind of statement. And it's this. To store up treasures in heaven means, and listen carefully here, it means to willingly restrict, to willingly restrict and to some degree impoverish yourselves. To willingly restrict and to some degree impoverish yourselves in this life by giving to those in need because you believe in the certainty of the life to come. It's a willingness to, to constrain your consumption now because you're absolutely convinced there's something beyond today. Something of greater value than today. By the way, we we see people practicing this kind of investment strategy in, in the scriptures. I cannot help but be drawn in my mind to Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. Peter preaches powerfully. Three thousand souls respond and are, and are saved in that, into that great sermon. And, it, and it, Luke tells us that they begin together, having all things in common. You remember? And they're selling their property. And they're, and they're giving to those in need. Why? Why? Why are they willing to do that? I think the answer lies in their absolute con, con, the fact that they're convinced that Jesus is coming again. He has told them that. The angels have told him that. They said, listen, in the same, why are you gazing up into the sky? In the same way that this Jesus went, he will come again. And when he comes again, he will establish his great millennial kingdom. And when he establishes his great millennial kingdom, all the wrongs will be righted. And the properties that, were, that have been taken from you will be returned to you. Justice will prevail. So in a sense, it's an easy thing to do. If you're convinced Messiah is really coming and he's going to make all things right, then a sacrifice in this life is a small price to pay. Now they were wrong. Jesus did not return in their lifetime. But it also has not escaped my thinking, is that the Romans did come. And in A.D. 70, they destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And they crucified a million Jewish people. And all of their property was taken away anyway. Didn't matter who owned it. Rome took it all away. You see, the same kind of investment mentality among the, the believers in the churches of Macedonia. Macedonia, the northern portion of Greece. Philippi, Thessalonica. Paul there in, in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians is, is written by Paul for a number of reasons, but not the least of which is to to remind the Corinthian church, a very wealthy church, of their prior commitment to make a contribution to offset the suffering brought about by the famine in Jerusalem. And so Paul writes this letter, and he sends it on ahead, and he says, we're coming to collect the offering that you have promised. Make sure it's ready for us. But he, he makes an interesting statement in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, about the Thessalonican church. And he uses this as a, as a motivation for the wealthy Corinthian assembly. Because the truth is that Paul's not 100% sure that they're going to follow through. So he, he speaks about those in verse 1, chapter 8, 2 Corinthians... The churches in Macedonia, and that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed, overflowed rather, in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify to you that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own account, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. These people are pleading with Paul for the opportunity to make a contribution to offset the poverty of the Believers back in Jerusalem. What motivates somebody to do that? The clue is in verse 5. In this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. There it is. They first gave themselves to the Lord. Their, Their priorities, their perspective was focused on God. They had chosen God. And when they had chosen God, they were able to give abundantly. Even though they were very poor. See, when Jesus back here in in Matthew 6, when he is speaking, he is not just speaking to those who are wealthy. You know, the thing about wealth is that you can always find somebody who's wealthier than you. So let's tax them. Right? It's there. Let them give. But God doesn't do it that way. He doesn't break it out that way. He's after the heart motive. Greed is no respecter of persons. It's, it's not associated with the size of one's bank account. It's an issue of the heart. So it doesn't matter where a person is economically, just starting out and, and scratching to make it through, or have an abundance, a superabundance. The issue of greed still lies close at hand. Back to Matthew 6. Jesus says in verse 21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be Also. This is the reason why your choice of investment strategies is so important. It reveals your heart. It reveals what's going on inside. What we value reveals the orientation of our heart. What's important to us. It's that which we long after. We noted last time, biblically, the the heart, it is the center of your being. It is the place of your personality, your mind, your emotions, your will, your affections. They're all gathered up in that biblical expression, your heart. It's the real you. Wherever your treasure is, that's where the real you is, Jesus says. That's where the real you is. Whatever we cherish, whatever we cherish at the deepest level, that will inevitably control and shape us. Two conflicting investment strategies. Second, two competing focuses. Second contrast, two competing focuses. Verses 22 and 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. This is a parable. So it takes a little work penetrate through the second contrast that jesus gives us here involves the eyes the eyes that is the contrast of the eyes and through this jesus is again driving home the single point we must choose god rather than greed now the main feature here is the human eye it sort of rolls through these two verses and they speak of the of the human eye as in sort of a as a parable, that it is through the eye that, that light comes into the body, and with light sight. The eye is the is the organ of human sight. It's all he's, it's all he's saying. But the essential principle under underneath this parable is that the, the condition of your eye determines the quality of your sight. The condition of the eye determines the quality of your sight. We know that in the natural realm. Jesus will apply it into the spiritual realm. Now in this this parable, the eye portrays our moral condition. Our moral condition. and, And thus the focus we have with regard to money and possessions. That's the context. The eye is your moral condition and thus your focus with regard to money and possessions. And there's a contrast here in verse 23. It's between what the New American Standard calls the clear eye and the bad eye. The clear eye and the bad eye. What does that mean? Well, let's take a look. Let's start with the easier, and we'll work our way back to the more difficult. So let's start with the bad eye. We'll start first with the bad eye. And you may notice in in your margin here, where it's translated bad eye, it literally is evil eye. Paneros is the Greek word, and it means evil. It is an evil eye. The contrast is between an evil eye and this other kind of eye. Now, by recognizing that reality, it really starts to open things up for us because the expression evil eye actually is used in many places in the Bible. The evil eye. And in all the places where it's used, it it uniformly means the same thing. The evil eye relates to the idea of greed, stinginess, covetousness, and miserliness. Reminds me of Ebenezer Scrooge, right? Tight-fisted, clutching old sinner. The evil eye talks about one who is greedy. One who is greedy. Let me show you this. Turn back with me to, to Deuteronomy chapter 15. Deuteronomy chapter 15 We'll pick it up in verse 7. This is talking about the Sabbath year. Every seven years, it says in verse 1, chapter 15, you shall grant a remission of debts. You shall grant a remission of debts. I think what he's talking about, by the way, is not that the debt is forgiven, but that the payments on the debt are waived for a year. It is the year of Jubilee in which the debt is forgiven. Be that as it may, pick it up in verse 7. If there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers, in any of your towns, in your land, which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brother, but you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need in whatever he lacks." Beware that there is no base thought in your heart, saying, The seventh year, the year of remission, is near, and your eye is hostile toward your poor brother, and you give him nothing, then he may cry to the Lord against you, and it will be a sin in you. You shall generously give to him, and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him, because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all your undertakings. Now, in verse 9, it says, That your eye shall not be hostile towards your poor brother. That word translated hostile in the Hebrew is the word evil. That your eye is not evil towards your brother. Your eye is not evil towards your brother. Your brother who is in need. Proverbs picks this up in a couple of places. So you can go over to Proverbs uh, chapter 23. Verses 6 and 7. Proverbs 23, verses 6 and 7. Do not eat the bread of a selfish man, or desire his delicacies, for as he thinks within himself, so he is. He says to you, eat and drink, but his heart is not with you. The selfish man is literally the evil eye. Do not eat the bread of an evil eye or desire his delicacies. It's the same thing. The evil eye, translated here in English as selfish because that's the context. That's what it gets at. But it's the idea of the evil eye. Chapter 28 in Proverbs, verse 22 makes it very plain, at least in the New American standard. Proverbs 28:22: "A man with an evil eye hastens after wealth and does not know that want will come upon him." Or let's go to the New Testament, let's go to Matthew. Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. Jesus tells here the parable of the landowner who hires various workers into his vineyard throughout the course of the day. You remember this. This is not an instruction on employment policy. This is to illustrate a lesson that the first shall be last and the last first. That is, everybody comes in the same way and at the same time. But he goes through this where he hires early, right, and they endure the heat of the day and they get what they were contracted for and so on and so forth throughout the day until at the end of the day he hires a few more right near at the end of the day and it's time to pay the workers and he pays them first and he pays them what he had contracted originally with those first hired. And those first hired think, okay, well, if he's paid them that, he's going to certainly pay us more. He gets to their turn and he pays them what he contracted with them and they are not happy. Right? They're not happy. Then look at verse 15. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye literally evil because I am generous? Is your eye evil because I am generous? Translating in the New American Standard, envious. But it's the idea of greedy or stingy, grasping. That's the context. The evil eye. Back to Matthew 6. Verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is evil, your whole body will be full of darkness. Clear. The clear eye, verse 22. Translated here in the New American Standard as, as clear. Haplus is the Greek word, and it literally means single. Single. The eye is a lamp of the body. So then, if your eye is single, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is evil, your whole body will be full of darkness. So the contrast here is between an evil eye and a single eye. And you go, uh, that's not exactly what I thought it would be. I thought it would be a contrast between an evil eye and a generous eye, right? Wouldn't that make sense? But Jesus is actually getting at something a little bit deeper than just that surface comparison. Strictly speaking, he's not contrasting here generosity and greed. He is contrasting a singular focus on God versus a blinding form of double vision that is trying to look to God and to money at the same time. That's why he chooses the word single. What he is saying is is that you you are to have a singular focus on God. He is to to be the center of your sight. Not trying to look at God and look at wealth at the same time. That's double vision. Generosity is is the outpouring, the outworking of the singular focus on God. Those whose eyes are clearly focused on God are those who end up being generous. They have a proper view of money and possessions. Let me see if I can illustrate this for you a little bit. This will resonate with a few of you. Maybe the other illustration will resonate with a few more. Let me start with target shooting. Target shooting with a pistol. All right? Well, at least a few of your ears perked up. Okay. In order to be successful target shooting with a pistol, one must properly focus their eyes. And the proper focus of the eye is on the front sight, the knot on the target. The front sight and its position between the rear sight, the sides of the rear sight and the plane and so forth, has to be in sharp focus, and the target will be blurry. And if that is your focus, you will hit the bullseye. If it flips around and the sights are blurry and the target is clear, you will miss. It's a question of focus. Being focused in the right place. All right? So there's your shooting lesson for this morning. Let me try a different one. Driving a car. Driving a car. It is, it is a well-known principle of driving a car that you will drive towards that which you are looking at. You will drive towards that which you are looking at. That's why you are supposed to keep your eyes on the road <laughs> and the car in front of you. And when you're driving like this, it's inevitable that that's where you'll end up. What you focus on is what you will steer towards. What you focus on is what you will steer towards. What you aim at is what you'll hit. So it's this singular focus that Jesus is after. A singular focus on God. Not the double vision. Not the God and my bank account kind of sight. Then he finishes this with a With a really dreadful warning in verse 23. If then, he says, if then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. That is a dreadful kind of warning. It's frightening. Essentially what he means is this, is, is that if you think you can see God clearly, but in reality you don't. Where you will end up is truly terrifying. None are so blind as those who think they can see, and they can't. Paul, the apostle, writes in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, "...but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction." For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Yeah, like who? 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me, Paul says. He has deserted me. You think you can see God when in reality what you're seeing is your wealth. The final state of your soul is devastating. Poor Demas he starts out so well, he ends up so ruined. Conflicting investment strategies competing focuses. Third, two contending loyalties. Third contrast, two contending loyalties. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The third contrast. Two contending loyalties. Jesus insists here that that his disciples, that we, cannot divide our loyalties between God and material possessions. We cannot do it. They are mutually exclusive, and he does it here in a very interesting way. Is and that is that he personifies wealth. He he gives wealth uh, personal attributes, as if it is another god. And that's not so hard to figure out because idolatry and greed run very close together. No one can serve two masters, he says, verse twenty four. This is the strongest possible statement here. Jesus is saying it is impossible to have contending loyalties. Impossible. He doesn't say it's hard to serve God and money. He doesn't say that only a few people can accomplish it. It's, it's really hard, really tricky, really difficult, and only a few manage. No, he says it cannot be done. No exceptions. Very strong statement in the Greek. It cannot be done. Nobody can do it. I don't care who you are. You cannot do it. What does it mean to serve? I mean, we know lots of people who, who hold down two part-time jobs. Right? They have two, two part-time jobs, two jobs. While well, they're on the first job, they're, they're effectively serving their employer. They're giving their all to the, to the job. They're a good employee. They finish that job, and they go on to another job. And, and they're under the new boss. They give themselves fully to the new task. They serve the boss well. They do a good job, and everybody's happy, right? That's because we don't understand what it means to serve. We have, we have weakened the term here in verse 24 to the place where we think we can make it work. But Jesus is very, very strong here. He says, you cannot do this. So that must mean that we don't understand service. We don't understand service. And we don't. He's speaking about slavery. speaking about slavery here. The word master, by the way, kurios, Lord, it means fundamentally a slave owner. No one can serve two slave owners, Jesus says. And the word serve is a form of the word doulos, which is the word slave. The context here is Slavery. Slavery. No slave can serve two slave masters. What he's saying is impossible here is the idea of being a part-time slave. There's no such thing as a part-time slave. To be a slave requires to give to the master your undivided loyalty and your obedience to the one who owns you. Their will, their desire for your life is what controls you. They establish your priorities. They set your boundaries. They direct your behaviors. That's what it means to belong to a slave master. Now, if they're a good and and kind master, they'll captivate your affections. Your service to them will not be motivated out of fear of punishment, but out of love. By the way, the Apostle Paul picks up on this in Romans chapter 6. Romans 6 begins in verse 16, runs through 22. We're not going to look at that there. But what Paul says is, listen, before you came to faith in Jesus Christ as, as your personal Savior, you were a slave to sin. You were a slave to sin. It controlled you. It dominated your life. It set your priorities. It set your boundaries. It gave you your direction, your marching orders. You had no choice but to obey it. This is to be a slave of sin. But now, something has changed, Paul says. And that is, you have become a slave of God and righteousness. It now controls you. It now sets your direction in life, your priorities. Your first master uh, sin was harsh. It was hateful. Your new master is gracious, loving, and kind. So Paul says there, why in the world would you ever want to return to the old way of life, right? That's the argument of Romans chapter 6. Listen, a life given over to God looks very different than a life given over to the slavery of greed. Slavery to God, slavery to greed. It looks very different. Those who are the slaves of God, the Bible says, walk by faith. They walk by faith. That is, they live their lives believing in God and His Word. They order their lives accordingly. Those who are given over to the slavery to greed walk by sight. They walk by sight. They are focused on this life and what they can see. Those who are slaves of God are characterized by humility, the Bible tells us. Those who are slaves of greed are characterized by pride. Their attitude is, look at what I have accomplished. Those who are slaves to God are characterized by generosity. Those that are slaves to greed are characterized by a stingy, close fisted approach to life. Their attitude is, I need to to make sure I have enough for me. You remember the famous question they asked uh, Rockefeller, right? Rockefeller, how much is enough? We're talking about a filthy, rich guy, right? Just a little bit more. How much is enough? Just a little bit more. One Bible commentator says this, I think it's a good quote. The slavery image of this passage reminds readers how quickly they may be owned by the things they possess. Owned by your own possessions. They occupy your thoughts. They occupy your worries. They occupy your finances. They occupy your time. Priorities. Crazy, huh? We're owned by what we own. (laughs) The contrast here that Jesus gives us is between two incompatible pursuits. You can't say that often enough. Two incompatible pursuits. So the question is, is, what is your legacy? What is your legacy in all of this? Let me share with you a story. Martin Lloyd-Jones tells this story in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. He writes about a farmer who one day went happily and with great joy in his heart to report to his wife and family that their best cow had given birth to twin calves, one red and one white. And he said, You know, I've suddenly had a feeling and an impulse that we must dedicate one of these calves to the Lord. We will bring them up together, and when the time comes, we will sell one and keep the proceeds, and we will sell the other and give the proceeds to the Lord's work. His wife asked him which he was going to dedicate to the Lord. He said, quote, There is no need to bother about that now, he replied. We will treat them both the same way, and when the time comes, we will do as I say. And off he went. In a few months, the man entered his kitchen looking very miserable and unhappy. When his wife asked him what was troubling him, he answered, I have bad news to give you. The Lord's calf is dead. But she said, you have not decided which was to be the Lord's calf. Oh, yes, he said. I had always decided it was to be the white one. And it was the white one that has died. The Lord's calf is dead. We kind of chuckle a little, right? You can see it coming. How true it is. Beloved, listen. If we don't plan, we don't determine in our heart, set it aside when we first get paid and give it to the Lord's work we will find that in spite of our best intentions, that often the Lord's calf dies. There's just too much month left for the money. Listen, ministry opportunity at Foothill abounds. God is alive and well and active in this fellowship. This year alone, by the grace of God, we're sending two families to the mission field. The wines to Argentina, Promise Vaughn to Papua New Guinea. That's exciting. A little church like this. I mean, we're just a little church. But God is active, God is doing things. And listen, there are others in our midst right now who are praying and training and desiring to go. There are others who who are working diligently and have expressed a a serious desire to, to go forth and plant churches domestically. Lord knows we need more good Bible teaching churches in this country. Will we have the resources? Will the resources be there when the time comes? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. Will they be there? And if they are, they're going to come from us. They're not going to fall in on a parachute from somewhere else. They're going to come from us. Are you willing? Don't answer this yet. Take it home and answer it. Are you willing to let the Holy Spirit of God evaluate your giving? To help you to determine where, where am I laying up my treasures? What is my investment strategy? We live in uncertain times economically, but you know what? They're no more uncertain than they were 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 100 years ago. Stability is an illusion. We don't know Tomorrow. This is the question to ask yourself, am I willing, am I willing to restrict my standard of living? Am I willing to restrict my standard of living? That is to to live at a lower level, to, to impoverish myself, at least at some level, in order to give to those in need because I believe that Jesus is returning and he's going to establish his kingdom. That's really what it comes down to. See, when you, when you ask the question that way, it, it sort of cuts through income levels. It's not about income levels. It's about heart issues. If you can't, if you can't articulate what it is you have foregone in order to give to the Lord's work, then I'd like to suggest to you that you're not giving enough. Now, percentages are, are something from the Old Testament law. We do not teach tithing here. Tithing went out when the Mosaic Law ended. We teach grace giving. But if we're giving by grace, should we be living at a level so far below the law? It's a hard question. Listen, it's only by the grace of God. It's by the Spirit of God that works in our hearts and transforms our priorities. It's the only way. Are you willing to to ask God to search your heart? Search me, O God, and know me. See if there be any wicked way in me. God, is my sight clear or is it cloudy? Let him show you the truth. If you need to repent, repent. And begin to walk in the truth. Walk in the light. Test the Lord God. He's promised to provide for you. May God bless his word. Let's pray. Our Father, this is a hard, a hard passage, a hard message. It's a message that confronts us. It's a message that causes us to search our own hearts, our own priorities. It's a message that will produce change in us if we will yield to your Spirit. Our Father, we don't know how much time we have until you send Christ back. We live in the reality and delight in it that Jesus could return at any time. But we also know that when he returns, we're going to give an accounting to him. Oh Lord, I pray that when we give that accounting, we will not shrink back in shame. Our Father, may Your Holy Spirit apply the truth here where it's needed in each and every one of our hearts. This is a personal matter. There's not something for for me or or anyone else to really dig around in in the specifics. This is is between us and You. But, O Lord, we do confess that we live in an age of rampant materialism unprecedented prosperity. We are wealthy beyond any who have preceded us in the history of your church. And Our Father, we confess at the same time that we consume the vast majority of it on ourselves. Do your work, O Lord. Wound where you must. Heal as only you can. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, beloved.